0: This morning, congregation, in your Bibles, we would direct your attention to two passages, the first one being from 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10 in your pew Bible. You can find that on page 1,391. After we read from that, we'll turn our attention to the words of our text for this morning from Ephesians 2, uh, verses 19 through 22. And in your pew Bible, you can find that on page 1,344. Uh, We profess and believe that the Scriptures are the result of the inspiration of the human authors uh, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, So there is one mind, you might say, behind the Holy Scriptures. Uh, That is the mind of God Himself, uh, more specifically the Holy Spirit. And so there is a wonderful organic unity uh, within the Scriptures. There are a variety of human authors. Uh, So, for example, we'll be reading this morning from Peter and also from Paul, but behind, in, and through Peter and Paul was the one Holy Spirit, so you'll find this wonderful unity uh, in the Scriptures. Uh, One of the practices when you come to interpreting Scripture is to use uh, passages from other parts of the Bible to shed light uh, into the passage that you are considering. Uh, So I wanted to read this morning from 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10, and then we'll look at our text together. And uh, no doubt you'll see the interconnection between the themes that run throughout these passages of Scripture. So the Word of God, first from 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10. "'Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious.'" "...coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We then turn our attention to our text, Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. And we read there as follows. In the Spirit. Now, thus far, our reading from the Scriptures this morning, a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it might be a profitable exercise to engage in, at least for a mere moment in our own minds, to reflect upon and to identify what exactly is our purpose. Now, you could ask that question at a personal level, as an individual human being, what is our purpose? But we could also ask that question at a corporate level. As, as a congregation, as a group of those who profess to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who, by the providence of God, have been brought into existence here in this particular place and in this particular congregation, what, what is our purpose? What is our reason for existence? I do believe that at least at an informal level, if not at a formal level, we ought to analyze that question and identify our answer because no doubt you have seen individuals who wander about without any sense of purpose. And it's quite a contrast between someone who you would say, Has a purpose. And the last thing that we want to do as a congregation, so to speak, is wander aimlessly throughout the years of our existence. No, what we want to do, I trust, is to be able to identify why exactly the Lord God has assembled us together so that we might understand in the year of our Lord. 2022 here in Pella, Iowa, that we might understand that that we have a particular purpose. And to begin to tie into our text and the analogy that the Apostle Paul uses, uh, many of you no doubt have some experience uh, with having a building constructed, maybe on your farm, uh, maybe your own home, maybe some type of outbuilding. Uh, And and when you design and when you begin to build a, a building, it's Absolutely vital to identify the purpose of that building. So, for example, if you were going to put up a a new hog confinement barn, you would identify the purpose is to, to raise hogs. And that would bear on every element of the design. And by contrast, if you had the opportunity to construct a new home for your family, I trust especially uh, the ladies in the congregation, would make sure that the new home was built differently than the hog confinement barn because of the different purposes. So what is our purpose as a congregation? I believe that we can do no better than to identify in our text the purpose which the Apostle Paul points out in verse 22. Our purpose is to be a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. A dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now we want to move to consider that underneath this theme, a description of the status of believers. And in that theme, you'll notice the word status And that has a definition of the position of an individual in relationship to another or others. So the status is not an individualistic status. One's status concerns that person's position in relationship to others. And we'll consider that at a horizontal level, but also at a vertical level. A description of the saint's status Notice, first of all, the nature of the status, secondly, the basis for the status, and then thirdly, the purpose of the status. So, a description of our status. We'll notice, first of all, the nature, then secondly, the basis, and then thirdly, the purpose of the status. Uh, the nature of the status can be identified as both citizenship and privilege. And on the first point, we want to try to be purposefully brief, because there is no doubt this development that's going on, and so much of what we have to say uh, in the first point kind of seeks to tie together what we have said or have attempted to say uh, in previous weeks as we've considered the previous passages. Uh, But allow me simply to say this, that in the midst of the culture in which the Apostle Paul was writing, in which there was this clear distinction socially between the Jews and the Gentiles, the apostle Paul says that there is this wonderful status of citizenship that belongs to the people of God regardless regardless of their social status or regardless of their ethnic background. And so in verse 19 you'll see that now therefore the apostle Paul says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Fellow citizens. And as Christians, as those who profess to possess the Lord Jesus Christ through the exercise of faith, this is at the very fabric of our identity. That I am a citizen of a heavenly kingdom, of the kingdom of God. And now what does citizenship give you if you think even at an earthly level? I believe most, if not all of us, have citizenship in the United States of America. That's something that we can be thankful for because it brings certain benefits. It brings certain privileges. It grants you the rights uh, that belong to that community, to that nation. And and perhaps, and I haven't had many experiences with traveling internationally, uh, but there can be a certain sense of comfort when you travel internationally that you are a United States citizen. I remember uh, many years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to travel to Israel. Uh, And of course, there's some trepidation as you enter into a land that is marked by conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And it's not my purpose to comment on the political nature of that conflict, uh, but just simply suffice it to say that for someone who's not well versed in international travel, as you go into this land that is marked by conflict, there can be certain anxieties and fears. And so I had to remind my wife. We're United States citizens. It'll be okay. Now, ultimately, of course, I know you can correct me and say, well, you should have referred to the providence of God. And that is certainly true. But having United States citizenship meant something. And so also, even more so, the Apostle Paul says, you are citizens of the kingdom of God. And more and more, I believe that we need to come to the awareness that that is our primary identity. We have been translated into the citizenship of the kingdom of God, and that brings a privilege, a certain privilege. No longer strangers and foreigners. And so there was this grand transformation that had taken place in these Ephesian believers. At one time they were strangers. At one time they were aliens. At one time they were outside the kingdom of God. As previous texts have stated, without hope. But now, because of the work of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, they have the privileged status of having all of the benefits that belong. To membership within the kingdom of God, the privileges of fellowship with God, of the forgiveness of sins, of the right of eternal life, of new spiritual life within their soul. And so allow me to say to all of us, but especially the young people, it is not some negative thing to be a Christian. At times you'll hear young people say, when you speak about the obligations of their baptism, uh, of being part of the covenant community, uh, you'll hear them say, well, I didn't choose this. I didn't want this laid upon me. I didn't want these obligations laid upon me. That's a misunderstanding of the rich benefits that there is to being in the covenant community of God by virtue of a reconciled relationship to God. Yes, we can be thankful for God's providence granting us citizenship in the United States of America, but infinitely more so our hearts ought to be filled with gratitude that this is our nature. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. But how and why did we become citizens? And that brings us into our second point, the basis for the status I want to try to explain the basis and then trace out uh, a few implications from the basis. How does a person become a citizen of the kingdom of God, of that spiritual redemptive kingdom that includes the benefits of eternal life, the benefits of the forgiveness of sins, the benefits of uh, a peace with God and a peace then also with my fellow man. There is one basis, and the basis is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and especially the chief cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God, let us be very, very, very clear, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom that is firmly built upon the redemptive work of our triune God, especially in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you'll notice that the apostle Paul brings this up in verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, being the chief cornerstone. And we'll trace out some of the points of the analogy that the Apostle Paul has going on here of the construction of a house, but for now just know the importance of the foundation but also the chief cornerstone because in ancient building, the chief cornerstone was what squared up everything in the foundation. You know, now sometimes you'll go to a building and maybe they have a special stone that they have put there and maybe it even commemorates the date that the building has been constructed. You know, sometimes with great ceremony that stone is laid, but that stone is not really essential to the entire structure. That's not the case here. The chief cornerstone an ancient building, when you were laying out the foundation upon which the entire structure would rest, the chief cornerstone was the first, the primary, because it squared everything up. It made sure that everything was right and true and correctly in place. And the Apostle Paul is very clear that there is one only chief cornerstone. Um, But this is not a new concept that the Apostle Paul introduces. This is a theme that has a long history in the revelation of Scripture. And so we refer to Isaiah 28, verse 16, a messianic prophecy. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion. Just notice the emphasis on the divine initiative. The Lord Himself lays this chief cornerstone. The church is not built upon human beings. The church is not successful. The church is not advanced merely by the actions of men and women. Now certainly, individuals have the opportunity to play a role in the advancement of the kingdom, but it is God Himself who lays the chief cornerstone. And back to the text we referenced you then, Isaiah 28, verse 16. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone. Tried in the sense that it's true. There's no cracks, there's no weakness. It's not a compromised stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. You can think also of Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And that points out the folly of so many members of humanity. Uh, They hear about this chief cornerstone, and perhaps even with some religious interest, they consider the chief cornerstone Jesus Christ, but they reject Him. I remember on a recent cab ride in Buffalo, New York, with Elder DeVries, as we talked uh, with our cab driver, it quickly became evident that he was a very spiritual man and a very aggressive apologetic for his form of spirituality, the Islamic faith. And he knew the name of Jesus Christ, but he rejected the idea, the truth, the reality that Jesus Christ was the eternal Son of God and the one only surety and mediator. He thought that that was foolishness. The cab driver could not understand how God... Could become man and so he discredited it but that doesn't change the fact that this truth jesus christ is the one and only chief cornerstone upon which the kingdom of god is built and upon which the church of the lord jesus christ rests this is very clear also in our text in verse 2 chapter 2, rather, verse 20. But what exactly does this mean that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone? His person and His work. And when you think of the most basic summary of the Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed, certainly there is a triune structure to the Apostles' Creed. What do I mean by that? We speak of God the Father, of His person and of His work, and we speak also of the Holy Spirit, uh, of His person and His work and the results of His work. But in the very middle of the Apostles' Creed, the most depth and breadth is given to the person of Jesus Christ and His steps of humiliation and His steps of exaltation. Because that congregation is the chief cornerstone upon which the church is built, knowing who Jesus Christ is and knowing what He has done in His redemptive work. This is the sure foundation. This is the tried stone here there is a solid foundation, and here alone, because He is the one only atoning sacrificial mediator. Uh, and notice also uh, that there is an appropriation of this work. Now what do I mean by that? There is a relationship between uh, what our text calls their living stones... Those who are Christians, made Christians, not by the will of man, but by the supernatural redemptive work of God in Christ. These living stones, you'll notice, are placed upon the foundation. And this is how it is in construction also. And now no doubt in Paul's day, he's referring here to stonemasons working with stones of irregular shapes and sizes. And we might think of modern construction techniques, using bricks, using perhaps wood, other elements. But if you have any experience with stone masonry, the stone walls need to be fixed and attached to the foundation. If they're not, you just have a pile of stones. Absolutely worthless. But when an expert mason chooses and selects stones and with his knowledge and with his care places them one by one connected together by a mortar upon the foundation that has been properly prepared and squared up then the entire edifice of the structure begins to come into existence and that's the analogy that the apostle Paul uh, is pointing out that there must be what we see there in verse 21 in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so there's just simply this call this morning. Are you united to Christ through a living faith as a result of the Word of God? Or are you A dead stone on a pile. There's a world of difference between a stone just lying in a pile and a living stone that has been placed on the wall of Zion as part of the structure that is the habitation for the living God. A few implications that we identify from this exclusive basis is that, first of all, note there is only one foundation. In a few moments, we're going to sing the church's one foundation. And what is that one foundation? The wisdom of man? The giftedness of man? No. Historical tradition? No. Intellectual orthodoxy? No. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. One foundation. Now, there's mention there of the apostles and the prophets, and that's simply their teachings concerning the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a singular basis upon which we must place all of our hope and all of our confidence because it is absolutely devastating, I can assure you, even in practical terms, if you try to build something off of the foundation. In previous years, I used to be employed in the construction of concrete foundations, and you begin with a concrete footing And in that footing there's rebar, etc. And then a keyway is put and on top of that footing you then pour the concrete wall. At, at, At times, and maybe this is overly technical for the illustration, but at times the footing man doesn't quite get the footing in the right place and so the wall man has to become creative and try to pour the wall where there is no footing. And I can assure you most times the result is absolutely disastrous because imagine you have these panels set up that are eight feet tall maybe nine feet tall maybe ten feet tall by about eight to one eight inches about one foot wide and you begin to pour concrete into these panels but what happens if there's no foundation underneath it it all just flows out and it just keeps flowing out It just keeps flowing out. And if we as a church are not seeking to make sure that we are built upon the one foundation of Jesus Christ and Him alone, eventually everything will flow out. And you will be left with nothing but a mess. There is one foundation. And there is an equal attachment to that one foundation. The stones are different in size, in appearance, in gifts, and in talents. The Apostle Paul mentions that elsewhere. You can think of 1 Corinthians 12. And if you've ever seen, you know, maybe you look at an old foundation that's made of stone. Uh, the stones are all different sizes and shapes, and that's true also of the church here. We're not all the same. We don't all look the same. We don't all act the same. We don't all have the same gifts and talents. But that's not something to bemoan. That's something to embrace that God has chosen a variety of stones and that He with uh, an expert wisdom uh, knows how to place this one there and knows how to place that one there. The unity is not found in that the stones are all the same The unity is found in that the stones have all been placed upon the one foundation, Jesus Christ. And so your fellow believer may look differently, may act differently, may have different gifts, different talents. That's exactly the way it's supposed to be, as long as they're also resting by a living act of faith upon the one foundation of Jesus Christ and of Him crucified. Because the living stones are all based in a unified process upon this foundation to serve a most holy purpose. And that brings us into our third point. What is the purpose of the church? To be a habitation, to be a dwelling place of the living God. Uh, various words throughout verses 20 and 21 having been built the whole building the holy temple the dwelling place and no doubt the apostle paul uh, has in the back of his mind so to speak the temple structure in the old testament and even before that the tabernacle structure where the lord god dwelt with his people and now yes absolutely god is omnipresent present everywhere with the entirety of His being. But He also has this special presence illustrated in the old dispensation by the Shekinah glory, this special presence whereby He comes in His grace and in His favor and He dwells in community and in fellowship and in covenantal relationships with His chosen people. And we want to underscore, and this was identified also by Peter, uh, that this God who dwells with His people is a holy God. I fear that the holiness of God is the attribute perhaps most overlooked uh, by the church in the 21st century. But God is a holy God. What does that mean? He is a God of infinite majesty, high and lifted up, far above all things that are created, but also that He is entirely separate from every form of evil. He exists in purity and righteousness. And he dwells among his people, and therefore his people, the church, also is to be a holy church. When you think, and and so often I'm reminded of the basic simplicity of apostolic doctrine. When you think, what is it that we say about the church? What do we believe about the church? We believe that the church is one holy, Catholic or universal church. Now, if you listen to the buzz in ecclesiastical land, you hear all kinds of different clamorings of what the church ought to be, what the church should be, what the church needs to become, what the church needs to do. And amidst all of the buzz, I'm afraid that we lose sight, myself also, of the simplicity. What does God want His church to be? That which she is. One edifice, one building that is holy, consecrated unto him so that he might dwell in her midst. Now I know you can't objectively evaluate the holiness of a church as easily as you can evaluate the numerical size of a church. But we could ask ourselves, what, what do we talk about more? What do we consider more? How many members are in the church or how holy the members are in the church? As, as ministers also, the question often comes, well, how, how big of a congregation is that? I, I don't know. I don't have a perfect recollection, far from it. I don't know if I've ever had anybody ask me, how holy is that church? I've had innumerable people ask me, both in regards to this congregation and my previous congregation, well, about how large is it? How big is it? Now, I'm not saying that's a completely inappropriate question, but why is it that I've been asked that question innumerable times. And to my recollection, I've never had a single person ask me, how holy is that church? Or how unified is that church? Could it perhaps be a result of not properly understanding the purpose of the church? The church is to be a dwelling place of God. And God is a holy God. And a holy God desires a holy dwelling place. You know, it is perhaps instructive for us that the Apostle Paul never really mentions how many members the church in Ephesus had. But he does emphasize that the church in Ephesus existed as living stones being attached to the one foundation with the cornerstone being Jesus Christ, and that they were there and that they were being constructed to be a holy residence for God. He mentioned this also uh, in... 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20, because the same theme was emphasized to the Corinthian church. And there the Apostle Paul says this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now he's referring to individual Christians as living stones, but these individual Christians are all united together upon the one foundation. So the truth is to individual Christians, but also to the collective body of Christians. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And when we properly understand and we properly reflect upon what a privilege this is, uh, then, then holiness will not be seen as some negative thing that we need to pursue. But then there will be a positive outlook upon the pursuit of holiness so that we might, by the grace of God, absolutely, but that we might present ourselves as living sacrifices, that God would dwell in the midst of us. The church here in this place and in this time, having this holy citizenship status with all of its privileges and benefits, being joined together as individual living stones but as one unified building as a holy habitation for our lord amen our heavenly father we do praise you because we know at least to some levels that you are a holy god although we acknowledge that many times we overlook that truth But we also stand amazed this morning that You would desire to dwell with us, that You would desire to fellowship with us, that You would desire to live in and among us as those who have been chosen, called according to Your purposes. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us life, spiritual life, a life that would unite us to the Lord Jesus Christ and that would construct us together as individual members but as one congregation. And may we perhaps remember or refocus upon our purpose as a congregation here in this place and in this time, that we do not exist for ourselves but that we rather exist as a dwelling place for a holy God. And so, Father, increase our holiness Uh, We ask this for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen.